Bismillah alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Rasulillah ala alihi wa sahbatihi wa man wala We praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala We send peace and blessings upon our beloved messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam upon his companions, his family and those who followed him until the end of time Assalamu alaikum everybody MashaAllah, I wasn't expecting to be in this room so it's a little awkward I'm used to teaching in a little smaller place but before we start, I just want to acknowledge uh, the work of the volunteers and people who like set up. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless them. We know uh, there's a very beautiful narration of our beloved messenger who said al-akhfiya, you know, like the hidden people, like people who volunteer, people who do things that you don't really know who they are. Uh, they are from paradise. So may Allah increase them, inshallah, and bless them. And then also it's wonderful to see so many different people uh, tonight, especially it's really cold. And also it's a Friday night, so there's a lot of a lot of things to do, you know, on a Friday evening. Um, before we, we jump into the book, uh, let's talk about what this book is. Qawaid uh, al-Tasawwuf is a book. For those of you who took the last course with me, we went over this concept of what are the Qawaid. And, and the word Qawaid is from a word which means the foundations, like the foundations of a house. Uh, the Qur'an says, وَإِذْ يَرْفَعْ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَائِدَ مِنَ بَيْتِ وَإِسْمَائِلُ like when Abraham and Ismail laid out the qawaid, the foundations of the Kaaba. That's the qawaid. Metaphorically, the qawaid are principles that are so universal, uh, they cover like an infinite number of things. It's important to notice as Muslims that most mainstream scholars say that the Quran is really a book of qawaid. Like the Quran is a book of like universal principles. So, for example, uh, Allah will not burden you more than you can handle. Like that's something that has an infinite number of applications. When I taught the course a few weeks ago, I asked people, how many of you said that this week? Everybody raise their hands. How many of you said that today? Everybody raise their hands. And how many of you said that like in the last hour? Raise their hands. So that's something like you find this ability to contextualize your faith uh, within any given context. And that's very important as we move forward. We also noted that the foundations of Islam were three in that last uh, course. And we mentioned the famous hadith of Gabriel, where Gabriel comes to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and asks him three questions. He asks him, what's Islam? And he said, Islam is to testify that there's no God except Allah, that Muhammad is his messenger, to establish prayer, to fast, to pay alms, and to make the pilgrimage if you can. Then he asked the Prophet about faith, and the Prophet said to worship Allah uh, is to believe in Allah, to believe in His angels, to believe in His books, to believe in the messengers, to believe in the hereafter, and to believe in providence, in qada and qadr. Basically, whatever happens is from God. And then the third thing he asked him about is ihsan. And ihsan, the Prophet said, is to worship Allah as though you see Him, even though you can't see Him. And ta'burullah ka'annaka tarah. To worship like you see God. There's another narration of this hadith. It says, To act in your life as though you see God. And we noted that in the development of Islamic science through history, each of these three foundations began to develop into their own faculties. So Islam became synonymous with jurisprudence, with fiqh, the outer issues. So is this halal, is this not halal, can I eat this, can I not eat this, can I listen to this, can I not listen to this, whatever. Is this, you know, makeup allowed because like animal byproducts, all kind of things, right? That's fiqh. The question about iman is, of course, theology. This developed into the college of theology, what's called now usul al-deen. And then ihsan also developed into its own science. And that science was called tasawwuf. And each of these three, initially, were very simple. You know, the needs of the Muslim community weren't very complex. The numbers of Muslims early on were relatively very few. Uh, but as Islam spread, and as the community of believers grew, the complexities of life began to present themselves to these different faculties. So you find them starting to break off into other faculties, into other colleges. So like in Azhar, where I studied in the, in the College of, of Theology, you have the Department of Western Philosophy, like 
Western philosophy is not something 400 years ago, 600 years ago, uh, scholars studied. I remember in high school in the Hausa in Egypt, I was reading, said, Waqala Immanuel Kant. I was like, who is Immanuel Kant? Like, who's this Sheikh Immanuel Kant? And then I realized, oh snap, I'm, that's, my, that's my relative right there. Like, you know, that, that's something that you wouldn't have read before. When you read a chapter on like Ayyam Ba'd al-Haditha, postmodernity, it's not something that you would have found, right, in an older tradition. So the point is, as the Muslim world expanded and you have this large number of different ethnicities and cultures and languages and sciences, you find that these faculties become more complex. This collapses around three, four hundred years ago. Um, and now, unfortunately, Islamic sciences, even within the purview of the Muslim community, I can speak on behalf of Sunni Muslims in particular, uh, is seen as something for the idiots. The sheikh is an idiot, he could make it to be a doctor, an engineer, so they sent him to go study the madrasa. And, and this has had a, a massive uh, impact on us as a community. Number one is we will find that we engage with perhaps religious scholarship that is somewhat simplistic, not complex, and at the same time it hasn't continued to update as earlier communities did because we're not putting money and investing in, in scaffolding uh, our religious scholarship. So many times when Muslims like to complain about their khatib, I said, well, have you supported like religious scholarship in your community. Like I was lucky, I lived in the Bay Area, and those people have so much money, mashallah. They just have a lot of money. And they were like, hey, why don't you go to Egypt? Like we'll pay for you to go to Egypt. But alhamdulillah, I mean, they supported me, and I, I lived in Egypt for like seven years. I worked in Egypt as well. But like that support came back, although I'm not in the Bay Area now, you know, to bring some khayr. And we're seeing this now, especially in American Muslim communities, scholarship funds and so on for religious studies because if religious studies is not a viable career option it's not going to attract people who are of a high caliber that's just how it goes uh, and within that complexity comes tasawwuf and tasawwuf if we read for example early books of tasawwuf like there there's a lot of understanding in their writing like they think they assume like you're already really a good person Right, so sometimes when we read those texts, we're like, man, I'm so horrible. Like, these people are amazing, right? Because there's a set of assumptions, and there's a society, and there's a context to which these people lived, which buttressed them from evil and facilitated doing good. Like being a wali was easy, easier than it is now, because of the general cultural kind of norms that, that existed. And then Tasawwuf runs into philosophy, especially in the Abbasi period. And we find that Tasawwuf becomes much more complex, much more detailed. Uh, and as it continues through history, it starts to separate, especially in the 15th century, uh, which would be the 9th century Hijri, it starts to separate itself from a few things. Number one, it starts to separate itself from Sharia. And what that means is it begins to untether itself from the restrictions of Sharia. So you would find people doing things which are contrary to Islamic principles like stabbing themselves and saying, you know, I'm so close to God, I can stab myself, I don't feel anything. Um, people would say like, you know, I'm so close to God, I don't have to pray anymore. Uh, I'm so close, and this led, secondly, to spiritual abuse. Now there's, there's no kind of restraints and it's about an experience and a vibe and a feeling and I'm no longer tethered to the sacred law then this leads to anarchy and chaos. And that led to a general kind of view, and you see this sometimes uh, in Salafi texts, where they will kind of pick the worst archetypes of Tasawwuf. They're usually picturing the, pick, taking these kind of people and depicting them. Some of you perhaps from overseas, you know, like Pir Sabs. Um, in America, we have other types of people in different faiths who do this, like who take advantage of people. The, the other thing that happens is it begins to turn itself into small enclaves of groups. And these groups begin to have problems with one another. Like, I follow this sheikh, you don't follow my sheikh. I mean, it's not like we're already divided enough as it is, right? Like, let's just compound it. 
So like I'm in this team, you're in that team, I'm in this group, you're in this group, and this develops into some internal serious issues. So number one is untethering itself from Sharia. Number two, spiritual abuse. Number three, what's called Hezbiya, secretarianism. People begin to uh, fight each other over things which they shouldn't be. And then the fourth is that the masses of the Muslim community, especially after the 18th century CE, begin to see Tasawwuf as a problem, as something that should be suspect. Sidi Ahmed Zarouq uh, comes, he's born in 1442. He's from Fes, Morocco. He's Barnusi, he's a Berber. Uh, and he was someone who was known as a great jurist. Uh, he was considered one of the great mujaddids uh, in the Maliki school. And that's why a lot of his books actually uh, are in law, written on law. At the same time, he was a follower of the Shadri Tariqah. Uh, so he was someone who adopted the science of Tasawwuf. But he wrote this book to what scholars say do two things. Number one, wake up the jurists who became so enamored with the law and the outer that they forgot the inner. And then secondly, to clean up the corruption that I alluded to earlier. To bring people and tether them back to the sacred. So in order to do that, he does something that we should think about now. Like we see Islamic activism in America, it's like really incredible. Uh, we see Muslims engaged in so many different aspects of American life. Sidi Ahmed Zarouq does something which we should think about, and that is he takes Tasawwuf and then he resubmerges it into Sharia. And then he links its principles to divine texts. And Qawaid, those universal principles I talked about earlier that are taken from divine texts, in order, as we would say, to clean house. In order to clean house. So he writes this book. And this book is, it's deep, man. Like, wallahi, I was telling my wife, I was like, man, my head hurts, man. Sheikh was like, it's very hard to translate. And coupled with that, today, for some reason, the file just deleted at 5 o'clock in the afternoon for the first course, which is tonight. So from 5 to 6, I had to, like, really rush. Um, this book is not being given a lot of attention, even in the Muslim world, because it's not easy. Like, for example, he says, if you live in any country, you should see the evil that's popular in that country. And if your friends are doing that evil, they're worthless. <laughs> I read it to my wife. She's like, who wrote that? <laughs> he doesn't play, right? Like, he demands, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that, right? But I'm saying he demands a sense of rigor and dedication that the soul doesn't like. Sidi Ahmed Zarouk is the person telling you, eat kale. <laughs> right? Sidi Ahmed Zarouk is the person saying, join CrossFit. <laughs> Sidi Ahmed Zarouk is the person saying, a low-carb diet will extend your life expectancy. We don't like people like that. Right? We like hot Cheetos. We like naan. Right? We like sleeping in late. So there is a sense of fidelity to his writing that at times like it really penetrates you. And it, it makes you think about something and we think about something that we generally don't like to think about and that's our crap. But not only does he do that, then he says, fix it. So for those of you who are like, we're going to talk about like the foundations of Tasawwuf, like Tasawwuf from Sharia, we'll do that tomorrow. Tomorrow the beginning is going to be a little bit more theoretical. Uh, his introduction to the text is extremely theoretical, um, but I didn't want to get lost in that and then miss like how he kind of sets it up. So what I thought we would do is we're going to take different principles in different places. I sent another PDF like an hour and a half ago, so hopefully you got it, uh, which will be for tonight. And this one is going to talk about you and me, the individual, and our relationship with God, our relationship with life. Uh, that will continue tomorrow in the morning, inshallah, more like 11. Uh, you know what I'm saying, not 10, Saturday. Um, but Sidi Zarouk would say 8 o'clock. Uh, but we'll be like, 11, alhamdulillah, 
And tomorrow we'll continue with the individual, like, how do I see myself with God? Like, how do I have hope? Where do I start? Like, how do I maintain? Is it okay to fail? And then we'll talk about the idea of friendship and support. Uh, and also in the morning we'll talk about kind of the, the theoretical foundations of tasawwuf. Uh, and then we'll move back to the individual, then to the types of friends that we have and friendship in general. And then we'll finish talking about uh, our, our path towards maintenance. Towards maintenance. So inshallah, we'll begin. Um, it's interesting to note about him that he was born an orphan uh, in 1442. His father and mother died as an infant. So he was raised by his grandmother. And it was his grandmother who made him a sheikh. And this is something that's in our tradition that came before. Um, a lot of things happened to us that have shaped our attitudes toward gender, outside of just ignorance, unfortunately. Uh, our engagement with the Victorian age had an incredible impact uh, on our attitudes toward gender. Um, immigration, conversion tends to create like the need to do the most strictest thing uh, has affected our impact and our attitude towards gender. But Sheikh Ahmed Zarouq is the product of his grandmother. So you have this young person who launches into becoming one of the great, great scholars, and the foundation is his grandmother. I experienced this myself. Two of my teachers, the first from West Africa, also from Senegal, uh, his sister taught him ten qiraat before he was ten. Another teacher I had, Sheikh Ahmed, uh, Sheikh Ali Salih, from Egypt, from Bab Zawaila. It's, it's like an interesting neighborhood in Cairo. It's kind of like the Greenwich Village of Cairo. Um, his mother, who was illiterate, basically she used to play in Masjid al-Azhar around 100 years ago. And she memorized all the texts. She memorized Quran like that. So he also had trouble writing, and then he lost his eyesight. So I asked him, he was a brilliant poet. He used to make poetry about my children. So I asked him like, man, how did you learn how to do that? He's like, my mom taught me everything. So there, there is a tradition uh, within our community of this. So inshallah, we'll begin uh, his introduction and then, and then we'll take some of the principles. We'll take a little break also because it is heavy. Uh, so I plan to like read the principle and then there's notes where you can take notes inshallah. Uh, and and uh, if you need me to clarify anything, like those of you who've studied with me before, you know I don't care. It's like, hey, it's okay. Like it's not, and we need to say this again. There's no need to say sorry for asking a question, right? And this, if you say sorry, you have to pay us five dollars. Right? The second thing is that um, it's it's a sign that you trust the teacher that you can argue and talk. You don't agree. It's not a sign of adab that you silence yourself and you don't offer constructive feedback out of like respect for the person. That's some nonsense, man. At the same time, be nice, right? <laughs> but like, if you don't agree, it's okay. Like, I don't agree with everything he says. Like, it's not the end of the world. This, this very modernist approach towards, we're gonna talk about this tomorrow, uh, the academy and ideas, constructions and intolerance he opens up his text with this but there should be like leeway and patience and excuses and so don't feel that you you can't like disagree or have something to say or share like I'm not hopefully I'm not that insecure plus the Celtics are gonna beat the Raptors so I'm fine inshallah so we begin uh, he starts, and the reason that we're going to read his introduction is that Sheikh Zarouq, in his introduction, kind of mentions the reason that he wrote the book. And that's something I think that I alluded to earlier that we're going to touch on. Like, in your field, in your science, and what you do, whether it's like community organizing, whether you're an academic, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a professor, or whatever. Not specifically, and that's one of the problems of recent Islamic movements. They thought that Islam could specifically guide everything. So you can say to them, okay, how is Islam going to specifically guide a turnaround jumper in the lane? It's not, right? But as an athlete, I may have like general principles that I can observe. So after I smash on the Knicks, right, I don't have to talk trash. I don't have to cuss someone out. 
So I brought like a general Islamic ethic into taking the turnaround jumper in the lane. And unfortunately, I saw this with Islamic movements in the Muslim world. Like, there's like Islamic toothpaste. There's like Islamic nail polish. There's like, now there's an Islamic hotel in Trinidad. I'm serious. And I asked a person, hey, what makes your hotel Islamic? And he's like, we have no windows. So I'm going to go to the Maldives so I can't look outside. And that makes it Islamic. Um, whereas, as Ashaltabi mentions, and, and a great writer and jurist, that Islam doesn't get into specifics generally. Islam deals with universals. Because if you claim to be a religion that's going to last the end of time, you can't burden people with particulars. Those lawyers in this room will appreciate that. But you give them like general ideas by which they can function. So like mercy, removing harm, removing difficulty, avoiding extremes. And those often are defined by scholars in different ages. Because extreme or ease or mercy may change, but it falls under the, the general purview of Islam. So the Shaykh, he does that. So he begins and he praises Allah. He says, Alhamdulillahi kama yajibu li'azimi majdihi wa jalali. And the Sheikh, by the way, he was a person of letters. Like, he's very eloquent. Uh, he had the ability to say a lot of things. And sometimes if you understand Arabic, you may be moved to tears. He's like really, really, really powerful, the way that he writes. So he says, all praise be to Allah, who his transcendence and his honor and his greatness demand that praise. Wassalatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi. And then he said, you know, and peace and blessings upon our master. Prophet said, Anas Sayyid, Wad ibn Adam wa Fakhar. Prophet said, I am the best human being. Sayyid, yani. So he said, peace and blessings upon Sayyidina Muhammad wa Alih and his family. You know, before the late 70s, there was no problem like with Sunni saying salawat upon the Al of Sayyidina Muhammad. But this political tragedy that's happened now in the Sunni world with Sunnis and Shias have been exasperated unfortunately with Syria. Uh, we have to remember, do not allow your hatred for something to swerve you from justice, to being honest, to being open. So most of the classical texts would always begin with salawat upon Ali Sayyidina Muhammad. That's why the most authentic nuskha of Bukhari, the most authentic uh, Edition of Sahih Bukhari, Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Fatima, Bukhari didn't mention them except he said Ali and Salam. This is Bukhari, the Imam of Ahl Sunnah in Hadith. And Imam al Bukhari and Imam Shafi'i, even though we consider them Sunni purists, they narrated on behalf of Shia in their Sahih because they understood justice. They weren't caught up in like this kind of political nonsense. We should think about these things today. Right? We can demand justice without hating each other. And what we find commonality on, we can work together. And he says, okay, to continue. And he said, you know, the reason that I wrote this small text, it's not a small text. But the Sheikh is being humble. He's not like, yo, you see what I did, dog? I dropped it, boy. No, he said, oh, mukhtasar. Wahada in Arabic, it's like this, you know, whatever. Hada mukhtasar. He doesn't say, you know, laqad katabtu kitaban aziman. You know, like I wrote this incredible book. He recognizes his humility. Fusulihi wa tamhidihi wa tamhidu bihada al mukhtasar wa fusuli. So, the reason I wrote this book, my intention for writing the small text and then organizing it is Tamheed Qawa'id al-Tasawwuf. The word Tamheed means to facilitate. The word Mahad is what? It's a bed. Right? So I'm going to lay it out. Like if you understand it in slang. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll it out for you. So I'm going to make it easy. And, it, and when you lie on it, it won't, it won't be harsh. So don't like freak out. So I have that Tamheed. It says Tamheed Qawa'id al-Tasawwuf wa usuli. And here he, he does something that's really important for all of us to think about and I alluded to it earlier. 
that in our lives there should be what's called al-bina wa ta'seel. And bina means how have I scaffold my life as a person? Is it scaffold on like religious general foundations? Like, for example, am I a nice person? Do I help people? You know, am I a good husband? Am I a good wife? Am I a good parent, child? Do I avoid evil? I'm not like moving to Ozarks trying to launder like $8 million in three months, right? That show's crazy. Right? I, I'm generally a decent human being, right? That's bina. Bina hayati. How have I built and scaffolded my life on foundational principles? That's important because like, most of us don't get to, aren't interested in learning the details of religion. But I can learn like the foundations of religion. So those are the qawa'id. What ta'sili means that I've, I've reinvested the general principles of Islam into tasawwuf. And then I did the second thing, what's called ta'sil. Ta'sil hayatik. That I've rooted these principles in sacred texts. So he's like, if you think about it, he's planting tasawwuf back into the sacred soil of Islam and rooting it in the foundations of Islam. Because we said one of the purposes of his book was to get rid of like the false, if you will, to soul of people. To deal with some of the corruption that was happening. When I worked in Dar Ifta in Egypt, we had this problem a lot. Because it's easy to claim some kind of unknown success that you can't measure. Like, hi, I'm Suhey, really? Okay, yeah, I'm better than you. Why? Oh, well, you can't tell, but... I have a special relationship with God. Trust me. I remember once after I converted, some of you perhaps have heard the story. I went to Malaysia, such a beautiful place, mashallah. And I was staying in a hotel with windows. And subhanAllah, I, I went to pray at this beautiful mosque. I was super excited, you know, convert, Muslim world, having that like Muslim high. And as I was traveling through the dispensary of the ummah, I finished namaz, I went to pray Juma, this beautiful mosque on a river. So this guy comes up to me, right? He's like, hey. I was like, hey. He's like, salam. I was like, salam. He's like, you know what? <laughs> what? He's like, I know where you're from. And I was like, how? He's like, because I have a special type of firasa. I have a special type of, type of insight from God that I can tell where people are from. So I said, I, you know, it would be really hard to figure out where I'm from in Malaysia. I don't stick out, bro. He's like, no, no, you're Western. <laughs> and I was like, Allahu Akbar. <laughs> Are you sure? My parents lied to me. He said, no, I, I have a special power. You should follow me. So I said, subhanAllah, man. And he said to me, after Asr, I'm going to make Umrah. I'll be back by Maghrib. And he wasn't, this person wasn't um, afflicted with any major illnesses. So I said, you're going to be back by Maghrib and make Umrah. He said, yes, because I'm special. I said, can I go with you? He said, you're not good enough. Uh, broke the converse heart, man. Never been to Umrah before either. Had my hopes up. But then I, I said to him, like, you know, can you read Fatiha? Like, can you read Surah Fatiha properly? He was like, no. I said, subhanAllah, man, you claim to have all these special powers, but like you can't even read Fatiha. This is what Sidi Zarouk was worried about. When I lived in the Bay Area, this can become cancerous. I mean, that's a benign form of it, it's silly. Uh, in the Bay Area years ago, in NorCal, um, we pray for the people there, of course, with all these fires and stuff. And there was a man who claimed to be able to take jinn from uh, young women, that was his specialty. Yeah, he's in prison now. No, no, he is in prison now. It's not funny, he's in prison now. 
Um, and people trusted him because he claimed to have, and this can be triggering for people, man, so forgive me. He claimed to have special powers that couldn't be judged. So Ahmed Zorok is like, this is some bakwas nonsense, bro. And that's why he ties it back to Sharia to clean it of those kind of problems. So when he says, Ta'silihi, that means I'm going to link it to the asl of usul, which is Islam. So it's a beautiful metaphor, like in our lives, if I'm in politics, if I'm an activist, if I'm in athletics, if I'm a lawyer, if I'm a teacher in a school, whatever, how do I think about scaffolding that on universal principles and then like rooting it in what I know of the sacred? And that also it helps me avoid the secularization process that naturally accompanies living in the West. And now living in the East. He says, He says, in a way that's going to marry the sacred law with al-haqiqah. And al-haqiqah means those moments of realization that God is God. In his time, there was haqiqah without sharia. And there was sharia without haqiqah. One led to irrational conservatism. Everything's literal. The other led to problematic notions of like we could say now like liberalism. So the sheikh, he's trying to marry them both together to create balance. This is very important. One of the principles that you'll find in this text over and over and over again is the concern for balance and equality. We have a principle in Islam. It's very important if you think about it, especially in the Western Academy. Or you say, if you can make things work together, it's better than just ripping something out. So we say, Meaning if I find any notions of intersectionality, it's better if I can make those things cooperate in my life than just saying like, I don't need this anymore. Because like Moses and Khadr, like once it's gone, it's hard to bring back. So we see something, the Shaykh, like there's, there's like the website, that's his book, but then there's the back end, and the back end, the Shaykh is operating on a very famous principle of Islam that says, if you can make things cooperate and work together, it's better. Al-Jama. Then he says, وَيَصِلُوا الْأُصُولَ وَالْفِقْبِ and to root the path of tasawwuf with the philosophy of Islamic law, usul and fiqh, the opinions of scholars. And that's why he called it qawa'id tasawwuf. Qawa'id tasawwuf. He says, وَعَلَى اللَّهِ اَعْتَمَدْتُ On Allah is who I rest and I reside. And I hope that he will facilitate my desire for what I want to accomplish. And upon him, like, I lean. And you hear the Shaykh, Shaykh got bars, boy. Shaykh is rhyming. And this is the way of the old Arabic writers, what's called saja. Saja means to rhyme. So listen, he says, وَفِي تَسِيرِ مَا أَرَدْتُ وَإِلَيْهِ اسْتَنَدْتُ وَفِي تَحْقِيقِ مَا قَسَدْتُ تُ 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 You have this in Quran. قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقَ مِنْ شَرِّ مَا خَلَقَ This is called saja in rhetoric. The Shaykh is trying to show you, I'm not just an idiot, man. I'm a master of Arabic liberal arts. So really, in order to study the book, uh, in a lot of ways, you would need a background in the following. But that's, hopefully I can try to help you a little in my small amount of what I know. Number one is Islamic philosophy. Number two is logic. Sheikh writes in a very Aristotelian way. Mantiq. Number three is a background in theology. Number four is a background in the philosophy of Sharia. And number five are some terminologies of jurists and Sufis. 
Oh, well, it's easy. Don't be scared, inshallah. But it's a course, you know. So take what you can, right? Don't don't make it hard on yourself. But I think, inshallah, I hate to sound like someone we all know. You're gonna love it, Donald Trump. So he, the first principle I thought that we would start with was a principle on general wellness. Wellness is something that. Um, and if you're on the NYU email list, this PDF perhaps has been sent to you uh, by now, inshallah. But wellness is something that, yes, ma'am. They wouldn't let, they said I can't do it. But if you're on the NYU email list, you, you can look it on your phone. My apologies. So what is wellness? Like when you think of wellness, what do you think of? Anyone want to share? Wellness. Yes, sir. Good health. A good health. That's what I think of. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Stability. Stability. Yeah, st stability allows me to feel well. Sir. Yeah. Content. Being content. Nice. Wellness. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, having having a, a, a big heart. Faye, yes. The absence of illness. Nice, nice. That's beautiful. Yes, ma'am. Finding a balance between mind, body, and spirit. Yes. Nice. Yeah, I think of my children, man. I think that if my kids are fine, I'm good. It's strange. Anyone here have kids? Yeah, so you know that feeling. Like, everybody's like, oh, I ain't got no kids. <laughs> I'm a mender dog, I ain't got no kids. Right? <laughs> but my brother in law owns it, so I can get you a discount. Um, he does. But I'm not hooking anyone up. But I think of my children. Like, if my children are smiling and happy, right, that's for me like wellness. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm okay. The Sheikh, he says, Al-Afiyah. Al-Afiyah, it's like as Faye defined it, right? It means to be free of uyub, To be free of any type of like problems and disturbances. The Prophet said, used to say, Is'arullah al-Afiyah. Ask Allah for Afiyah. Ask Allah for wellness. Because if I'm not well, I can't serve. If I'm not whole, I can't be whole. In my worship. That's what Allah says to the Quraysh. We protected you from fear. Then we ask you to worship us. Any educators here, you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Security, comfortability. If little Johnny lost his Dora pencil, he can't take a test. He doesn't have afia. He doesn't feel well. So the Sheikh he says, Al Afiyatu Sukun al Qalb. He says that wellness is the tranquility of your heart. Sukun means silence. Sakina means tranquility. A house is called Sakin. Because that's where you find peace, ideally, in silence. The ability to rest. So he says, He said that afia is the tranquility or silence of the heart. From things that, means when you drive, the motorib. You ever been like, if you ever go overseas and you go visit people who live in a village, this happens when I go to Oklahoma. If I go to my grandparents' city, the roads are horrible, man. It's like Georgia Avenue in DC, if you're from DC. Or those cobblestone roads that you hit sometimes here in New York. Oh my God, where are we? That's iltirab. So here it's a metaphor. He's saying your heart is like that. Something's moving your soul. So he said al-afiyah. And what he means is like, this is the foundation of afia. If your heart is sound, you'll be okay. 
If the heart is well, you'll be okay. We know the famous narration of Nu'man al-Bashir who said, the Prophet said, in the body there's a piece of flesh, if it's sound, the body's sound, if it's corrupted, the body's corrupted, it's the heart. The Sahaba used to say, the heart is the general, the mind is the president, and the limbs are the soldiers. And the soldiers are always trying to rebel. And sometimes the general. So the Shaykh he says, Al Afiyatu Sukunul Qalb Anitirab. Those disturbances, he talks about what they could be. It could be something related to your life. Like I get text, I think, every day from someone, and I'm not saying this to trigger anybody, who's being abused, man. And then they're like, I don't understand like, why I can't have a relationship with God. Like, you're being abused. Like, let's deal with the abuse. Let's deal with what's causing that trauma. Or it could be that I covet things. Tom'an. Like I love dunya. I'm caught up, man. So it creates a disturbance in the heart. So it could be related to attachments. It could be anything. Insecurities. Lack of self-value. Hard, being too hard in issues. Or too soft. Any of those things can create that disturbance. And that's from life. It could also be good or bad. Like sometimes, you know, I told people the story and I was training and my trainer came and I was running on the treadmill. He put it on uh, 8 and 14. I was like, man, and you're much known, man. And then he left. I put that joint on 3. <laughs> then he came back and he was like, why'd you do that? And I was like, because it's easier. He's like, you know, studies show. Hey, when they do that, studies show. There was like some study in Scandinavia that showed that when the treadmill increases, people perform better. I was like, man, there's a study in Oklahoma that says a bucket of Popeye's chicken helps you perform better. <laughs> Point is, adversity sometimes brings out the best in us. So what he's saying is, maybe something in your life has stepped up to disturb you, and that's from God. Or shara'in. Or he says, maybe also something has brought about a disturbance from the sacred. Meaning, maybe I realized I'm a sinner. Maybe I've awoken from my slumber. So it's disturbing my heart. It's bothering me. And then he says, Or you've had a moment of uh, an epiphany. Something just happened that's just woken you up. You woke. It's interesting, I know that word is played out. But in our tradition is the idea of al-yaqadha. It's the first station of the seeker is being woke. Al-iqadh. So something may have happened that has unveiled for you the state of your spirit, state of your faith. And that's called al-haqiqatama. Like my life is for God, but I'm not living it that way. And then he says, وَهِيَ سُكُونُ الْقَلْبِ إِلَى And that, that true realization is when you've reached a state where you're pleased with God. And the scholar said there's three signs of that. Number one is I don't complain a lot. Number three is satisfaction. Like I'm satisfied. If I put forth all the effort I can, I've done what I can do, and that's the outcome, alhamdulillah. And the third is mercy to others. Because I know it's hard. So I appreciate the struggle. I appreciate the struggle. So he says, that's sukun ilallah. Have you ever thought about like, are you really happy with God? People don't like to talk about that stuff. Sometimes it's hard. And sometimes it's okay to struggle with that. We tell people like, oh, you have to be happy with everything. Okay, then say that to someone who's being abused, man. Or to say this to someone who lost their job. It's okay to struggle through this. And there's two ways to deal with that. 
Number one is, if it's clinical, to get to a therapist. I think Khaled, myself, and others, we talk about like the number of times people reach out to us for things which we're not qualified to deal with. And then the second is, is a strong supporting cast, whether it's like religious teachers, whether it's our friends, people around us who can support us. Resilience. Resilience is very rarely uh, self-controlled. Usually we're inspired to resilience by others. This is the way it works. And then he says, And that being complacent with God is the complacent, not complacent, but pleased, and the heart is not disturbed, is the station of people who've, who've perfected and worked on their Iman. So he notes three things, right? He says number one is the ability to be at a state of rest with my life. To be at a state of rest with my deen. And the third is to be at a state of rest with what I have. That last one, most scholars said is the hardest. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ in the hadith, he said, to believe in Allah, His angels, His books, His messengers, the Day of Judgment, and to believe whatever happens to you. So he mentions the verb again. He mentions the verb to believe in providence, in your lot. Because that one's tough, man. It needs work. And then the question arises like, how? Like, how do we start the process of wellness? And that takes us to the next principle. And Islam identifies that process as worship. Like, it's really dope, man, if you think about worship within the context of wellness. Perhaps we think of worship in the concept of, like, punishment, boredom, ritual, shame, hardship, difficulty, why I got to do that. This is hard, for reals. I remember I was traveling once in a, in a, a Muslim country and I was reviewing the Quran. And I got to the part with Yasin. That time I was wearing like flowing robes and stuff. I was going through my convert moment. Right? And uh, my wife was like, I'm so glad I met you after convert moment. I was like, I can go back. Like, no, it's fine. Um, and uh, I was reading Yasin and the people who I was in front of their home their phones started ringing incessantly so I said man what do y'all do? y'all's phones ringing it's like episode from the wire or something man they came to me and they said can you, can you please stop reading Quran in front of our house I said why? they said people think somebody died like, why else would someone in a Muslim country be reading the Qur'an in front of our house? Something bad happened. Right? That's, a, that's a great, but also that's a formulation. That's a construction. That's a view. I had a student once who uh, didn't want to learn the Qur'an. This is years ago in Oklahoma. And parent, you know, forced them to come, which never works. But subhanAllah, I had a conversation with this person. I said, hey... Why are you so like reluctant to study? And they said to me, because, you know, I've had kind of interesting experience. So it's okay. So we started reading the Quran together. And then this person, mashallah, she memorized like really quickly. She's very brilliant. And then she like made a mistake. If you don't understand Arabic, like you can confuse that. So she's like, I was like, what? No, it's Hal Ata'ala al Insani. And then she's like, are you going to hit me? And I was like, no, I got candy. She's like, no, but like, that's my problem. It's like my association is not a good one. So the sheikh, what he does is he begins to reformulate how we see worship. Worship as a key to wellness. It's very beautiful. It's as though he's saying to you, Come back home. That's why the Prophet said, 
The, the believer is like a horse that escapes. One day it comes back. A lot of us, man, have been out there far. When I quit being an imam in Boston, I said I hate Muslims. Sounds horrible, right? I said, you know what? I'm just going to buy like a motorcycle, man. Buy a house in Santa Cruz. And just like ride a motorcycle up and down the Pacific Highway. I just can't deal with it no more, man. That's not fair. Like, community was awesome. But sometimes you got to pull away, man. It's normal. Sometimes our relationship with Allah will pull back a little. It's hard. Difficulties. Failure. Sheikh is saying, let's reformat how we see these things. Based on principles and submerging this idea into the sacred. So as though he's like saying, let's like windex all the crap you've been through in your life, man. Not to dismiss it, but at least when it comes to the relationship with God. And let's reformat the hard drive. So he starts with worship. He says, Al-ibadatu kulluha jam'un wa nurun. He said something really beautiful, man. He says, Al-ibadah, the word ibadah, worship, actually is from a word which means to smooth something. So we say like the road is ma'bad. Like the road has been paved. So many people walked over it or drove over it. Like the asphalt became slippery. So the idea is the soul is rocky, man. The nafs is like... So worship smooths it. What some scholars call tahdeeb and nufus. So he says, Al-ibadatu kulluha jam'un wa nurun. He said, worship, all worship is organization and light. What he means by the word jama, it's hard to translate, man. It means what you're able to like organize your life on and be comfortable. What brings you together, makes you whole. That's why one of the meanings of Quran is the word Quran has two meanings in Arabic. One is to recite, but the other meaning of, of the Quran, the Arabic meaning is jam'u shay, to bring something together because the Quran because the Quran brought letters together. So the idea is the Quran brings you together, makes you whole. That's its purpose. It's saying that al-ibadah, worship, all of it is what can make you whole again. Come back to it. And it's a light for you. So if you find yourself struggling or you find yourself in difficulty, you can turn on the light of worship. والمعاصي كلها والمكروهات المتفق عليها تفريق وظلمة. And then he says, and sin, and agreed upon evil. Scholars agreed on something's evil. We'll talk about it later on. Tomorrow we'll talk about scholars and how we engage with scholars and how there's not this. There's a difference between expertise and authoritarianism. But now he talks about المتفق عليها what they all agreed on is like, and the community generally agrees on is evil, tafriqun is chaos. It's chaos, wa and the absence of light. And like, in numerous places, of course, in the Quran, and in the hadith of Sayyidina Muhammad, for example, he said, salatu nur, prayer is a light. In the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, calls faith a light. It's like a metaphor to show you how this faith is to function within the context of who you are and where you are. And sin in general is chaos. Makes sense because if people agree and focus on Allah, they're not going to compete. But when people focus on dunya and dunya is so infinite it's going to divide them and destroy them and then he begins with things we should think about as we go through this process 
and he says something very profound. It's like it's almost like a challenge. Like it's not easy. Man. It, it comes in a way that's uh, phrased to like make us think. He said, "Ifrad al-qalbi lillahi matlubun bi kulli Because maybe when we think about worship, we think like worship is only for the mosque, or worship is only like you know in certain sacred places. So what he's saying is ifrad Allahi. Like making Allah exclusive. Ifrad al-qalb, making the heart exclusively for God in every situation every situation is always commendable. Another way to translate it would be al-matlub, like it's sought after or it's commanded. And what he means by hal, and this is a term we should define in our theology, means the state of the heart. Hal is the action of the heart. Fi'il is the action of the limbs. So what he's saying is, if you're going to start this process, and you're going to root yourself in tasawwuf, Sunni, Shi'i, Orthodox tasawwuf, then first start with your heart and get it with God in every situation as best you can. He doesn't mean to like constantly, like that's impossible, right? But he means in general. In general, people tend to take these things and go really extreme. We'll, we'll, we'll bring it down a little bit later. But ifrad al-qabli lahi matlubun fi kulli halin. That in those different states that you find yourself emotionally, whether it's success, whether it's happiness, whether it's sadness, bring God into it. Make your heart for, for God. Our scholar said that there's eight situations usually we find ourselves in. One of our teachers, he wrote a poem about it. He said, He said, like, eight things. Always people will find themselves in one of those eight situations. And then he mentioned them. He said, sadness, happiness, congregating, isolation, Health, sickness, riches, or need. So that's it. And from those come so many emotions, so many ahwal. That's why, subhanAllah, we're a community that's like emotionally invested. You say, Kaifa haruk, you're going to say, Kaifa af'aruk. You say, Kaifa haruk, not Kaifa af'aruk. How's your heart? So the Shaykh is saying, start with the heart. And the word heart in Arabic, so the word qalb means to change. And anyone here from Jordan, Palestine, what's your most famous dish? Maqlouba. Maqlouba. Right? Maqlouba. It's a dish because when they cook it, they turn it upside down. So the heart is called qalb because yanqalib. It's like that song, I miss you, I love you, I hate you. That one. That's qalb. I heard that song. I got kids, man. I heard that song. I said, man, that is a tafsir of the heart. <laughs> because the heart is like that. Yang qalb. So he said, control that. Make it for God. Then the question is, like, how? So he phrases in a way that, of course, creates, like, an interest. But the first is to dig deep into our states and to understand who we are. And of course, we, we believe religiously that making the heart for God is not simply just like a pleiatitude. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much. Your paper was, she wrote the best paper for my class, man. Mashallah. I read it, I was like, wow, her and Melanie. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. It's a class here at NYU, but like it was really, really mashallah. It wasn't just mashallah, it was really, really mashallah. <laughs> but a lot of people claim to want to make their heart for God. Okay, everybody here will say it. I'll say it, you'll say it. So now the Sheikh begins to make some demands, like some logical demands. So he says something very powerful. He says, 
اتزام اللازم للملزوم موصل إليه. It's very hard to translate this into English. What it means is, it is obligatory to attach yourself to the thing you say you want. Whoa, that's tough, man. Iltizam, clinging to the thing you say that you really truly want, then it is an obligation to cling to those things that will bring you to it. I read this, my wife was like, what does that mean? I say, if I say I love you, and I don't do anything to show that love. She's like, I got it. <laughs> like, hey, what, what? So what he's saying is, if now we're going to claim to be giving our hearts to God, then we should cling to what will take us to Him. The steps. There's something subtle that's lost in translation. And that is responsibility. One time a young woman, she said to me, I feel so far away from God. I said, who moved? She's like, I, I, why do you say that? What he's saying is like, if I truly am making this claim that I long for Allah. Even Taymiyyah said, if people understood, they would realize they need Allah more than they need water. So if I like make this claim, then I have to feel, fulfill that claim with some actions which would exemplify the fact that I'm being responsible. So I'll search for those things that make me closer to God and I'll cling to them. Iltizam. To cling to it like this. So he says, when you cling on to those things which are going to obligate your relationship with something, they'll take you to that thing. And the theme here is attachments. And what he's asking is, where do you want to go, but what are you attached to? So for example, if I say, yeah man, I want to run New York Marathon next year and like have a BMI of 12%. And my trainer says, Rafin, where are you going? I'm like, eat some pizza. Now obviously I'm not clinging on to my claim. So what he's saying is, if I claim to want God and to make my heart for God, then the logical outcome will be I will find and cling to those things that will take me into that relationship. So you can see where he's starting to frame it. And then he says something very beautiful. فَمِنْ ثَمَّ فَضْلُ الذِّكْرُ غَيْرَ And that's why, and here's the starting point, the means to start with. He says, and for that reason, there is nothing greater than remembering God to start with. Dhikr. Everybody here, we can make dhikr. I don't have to go to like Ezhar to learn how to make dhikr. No one has to write a paper and subject it to peer review. Can I make zikr now? Zikr. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, and he says, إِذَا مَا أَرَدْتَ أَنْ يَلْزَمَكَ فَلْزَمْ مَلْزُومِيَّتَهُ It's very beautiful in Arabic. He said, إِذَا مَا أَرَدْتَ If you want أَنْ يَلْزَمَكَ اللَّهُ That God will be with you, then cling to what will make that happen. And then he mentions the verse in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse number 152. It's very beautiful, man. Remember me, I remember you. So it's like the first step in the process. When was the last time you just like sat alone and you called on Allah's names. When was the last time I just sat alone and I said, Allah. When was the last time like I was by myself, I said, Ya Rabbi. Imam Shafi used to say, 
I lived in a city where people were so bad, I just used to talk to God. When's the last time you talked to Allah? In your steps, in your walking, what's your plan for me? Show me your plan for me. Forgive me. Strengthen me. You know, when we say things like that, it gets real, man. Everybody got quiet. I remember a few weeks ago here at ICNYU, it was Fried Chicken Friday, so I thought I would do some experimenting. And I said, you know, I'm going to make dua in English, man. I'm going to see what's going to happen. So I started out. I made the typical beautiful du'as for things that we always hear. But then I said, oh Allah, help us to be allies to black America. People won't like this. Uh, uh, what? I said, oh Allah, help us to be good husbands and love our wives. Uh, oh Allah, help us to go zero waste. <laughs> said, what? Now I realized something. When you say du'a for something that people have to do, I saw a brother, I kid you not, on one of the things I said, he went like this. <laughs> he like rejected the dua, man. <laughs> but I learned something. That we tend to turn off responsibility. Sheikh is saying, if you want to be responsible and make that relationship happen, and you're seriously about trying to seek God, start by talking to him. Start by having that relationship. And maybe you just need to make that dua and say, I don't understand why my life is like this and it sucks. It's freaking hard. It's okay, man. It's okay. But communication. So he said the first step is remembering Allah. And he said there's no greater gift than that if you're doing that. So he gives you like a starting point. We're going to take like a five minute break. We'll come back inshallah and finish up for tonight. I know we'll have some, if you have any questions, or thoughts or comments. Uh, we'll take like five minutes and, and jump back into it inshallah.